Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. Margaret M. Chin was born and raised in New York City and is herself a child of Chinese immigrant parents. She is currently an associate professor of sociology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, CUNY. Margaret received her BA from Harvard University and her PhD from Columbia University. She is the author of two books, the award-winning Sewing Women, Immigrants, and the New York City Garment Industry, and Illuminating Ethnography on the Chinese and Korean Garment Sectors, and Stuck, Why Asian Americans Don't Reach the Top of the Corporate Ladder. This book is an analysis of the need to understand how factors such as racism, a lack of trust, and having few sponsors can hold second-generation Asian Americans back, which is the subject of our podcast conversation today. Welcome back to The Thought Project, Professor Margaret Chin. Thank you for having me again. I enjoy um, speaking to you whenever I'm on or whenever I get to see you or talk to you. I enjoy speaking to you. Thank Uh, you so much, Tanya. uh, You're welcome, and you're a great colleague. Congratulations on your new book, Stuck. You developed your book based on research on a cohort of second-generation Asian Americans. You report that across industries that Asian Americans lag on climbing the corporate ladder. You introduced a term, the bamboo ceiling, which I really thought was clever and smart. In your introduction, this sentence really jumped out to me. For a specific group of scholars, they have determined that demography is not destiny. In their opinion, the elite class, meaning white Caucasians in America, will reproduce itself with only a few exceptions to satisfy many minimum expectations in a society that is at least in theory a meritocracy. However, belief in such a system and a process is viewed by many scholars as overly simplistic, and there are opaque forces that seem to affect the promotion pipeline and that can have a negative impact when it comes to achievement on both individual and institution levels. Can you give an overview to our listeners about how you approached the research for this book and what it told you about why many Asian American second generation are exceptionally educated at distinguished universities, but yet do not reach significant heights in corporations that are consistent across industries in American workforce and in American society. Yeah, certainly. I probably should tell you how I started this research and can explain a little bit of it. I was at a reception for Harvard College admits, maybe in 2012 or 13. I'm a Harvard College alumni, and I interview high school students on occasion. And I was at this reception, and 
the room was filled with um, Asian Americans. And partially, I think it's Asian American students that get in, they bring their parents, they bring their siblings. So it just looked like there were tons of people in there who are Asian American. You know, it's not more than you would expect, but it just looks that way because they brought people who, who were proud of them, right? Yes. So there, an admissions officer asked me, Hmm, we've been admitting Asian Americans at a high rate for like um, 30 years now, um, ever since we started a, an affirmative action program. Do you know where Asian Americans are these days? Kind of like curious, not to say that it was anything bad or anything like that, but just curious. And then I said, you know what? I really don't know where we all are. So that's what got me into looking I at where people are. It all started with the Asian American Harvard alums. And so I went through their um, alumni network and I started interviewing. And then from there, I did a snowball sample of their friends. So I had um, 103 in the end of people who were Ivy League graduates, non-Ivy League graduates, people who graduated from, you know, community schools all over a mixture of people um, from very selective to not so selective schools. 103, and I looked at three different cohorts, people who graduated college from the 1980s, the 1990s, and the 2000s. And the most significant part of this is that I interviewed what I would call the broadly defined second generation. And most people, when they think about um, studies of Asian Americans in the corporate world or in the workforce, have never really distinguished so much. Only lately they've distinguished the American born. But what I did was I looked at those who were born, who were immigrants, but who came here before they were age uh, 13 and the American born. And that group who are immigrants, why they're so significant is that when I started interviewing people, I realized that I myself who am an American born and of Chinese immigrant heritage, I couldn't tell that some of these folks who were immigrants who came here as children were actually foreign born. I thought they were American born just like me. And then I looked at some other studies and realized that this particular group, they went to school here since middle school, high school. They're all socially and culturally American. And why it's so significant is that if you go into any workplace, probably 40% of the Asian Americans in that room are broadly defined second generation. So there are no language barriers. They've gone to school here. They understand the culture here in the U.S. What is holding them back? And um, I'll give you a quick figure about corporations and why I thought it was so important to study people in the work world. So even though Asian Americans, if you look at Harvard in particular, 25% of the admitted class, the freshman class, but even among professors, there are only um, 11 or 10% of tenured faculty at Harvard. If you look at corporations, you'll see that um, even 55 years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, people in the top levels of corporations are really slow at getting up there, in other words. Right. In 2018, of the Fortune 500 CEOs, there were less than a dozen Asian Americans. Only three are black and only 24 are women. So that quote that you gave in the very beginning yes. by Zwickenhoff and Domhoff, it really shows that at the very top, it's majority white men. Right. Likewise, in fields that you think Asian Americans should be um, succeeding in, especially in like tech, if you look in Silicon Valley and right. five corporations, right, you have 27% of the professionals are Asian American, but only 14% of the executives 
Americans are. Likewise in law, and this is a shocking number, 124 were associates, but only 14 became partners. They actually have the highest attrition rates and the lowest rates to partnership out of all of the groups of color, including including African-Americans and um, Latinos. Now, Now, when you talk about the one and a half generation, is that the people that come here, they were born outside of America and they came here or or am I misunderstanding what that means? So the one and a half generation? Yes. Um, specifically, it was defined um, by, by you know, another grad center colleague, a couple of them, um, Phil Kazanitz and John Mollenkoff, right. along with Mary uh, Waters. They wrote a book on the second generation, and they defined this group, the 1.5, meaning they were born overseas, uh-huh. but they came here before they were age 13. Okay, so, so they came that here was, really as little children. Right. So they assimilated very quickly as a child, probably. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that's... psychologists have shown that they don't even have an accent with whatever home language they might have spoken when they were infants, you know. Sure. Very interesting. So you came to this conclusion and you actually point out that when it came to the positions at the highest level, Race matters more than many people are willing to admit, and certainly more than many people acknowledge race affects the movement of Asian Americans up the work ladder. I want to hear your thoughts about that. You know, it's I guess it's obvious after you go through the data and you look, but it must have come out of your oral interviews as well. And do you have a policy prescription besides the obvious one of, you know, civil rights, etc.? All of the... 103, I would say more than half of them really wouldn't say it was anything systemic. So you have to remember, I interviewed people between 2014 and 2016. So this is before all of the most recent anti-racism discussion or even people learning the new language, right? So um, a lot of them saw if there was any kind of discrimination they saw that discrimination happening to their parents. And this includes the 1980 graduates to the youngest 2000 graduates. And that they now, it's mostly just, you know, microaggressions or implicit bias. Mm -hmm. Nothing really, and moreover, it wasn't systemic. It was just among individuals. So if somebody um, discriminated against you or you felt there was discrimination, you thought it was an individual disagreement between you and the other person. Most of them just kind of laughed it off, shrugged it off, and tried to figure out how to deal with it individually, how to deal with that person, or just fix it with themselves. Like if they said I had something like I wasn't um, speaking up enough, then they go to Toastmasters or something and learn how to speak better or something, you know, did something individually. But after interviewing all of these folks with all similar stories, because that's how you do ethnography when the stories start repeating themselves, sure. you kind of stop interviewing. So some of them had similar stories. I began to see that it was definitely systemic and that it was definitely racism that was affecting these individuals, especially when they got to the level of mid-management or higher it was something much more going on and that they needed to um, think about how to um, address it, not just as an individual, but more systemically. That makes sense. 
Do you want me to give you an example? Sure, of, sure. Um, Why don't you illustrate happen? it? Yeah, illustrate it. Yeah. That would be great for our listeners. Yeah. One example, as people reach, I'd say, um, almost the top level where they uh, hit the executive sweeps, one thing came out clear. A lot of the people who, and I didn't have that many, I only had seven people who are within that in that chief executive suite. And they talked about how important trust was um, at that level, how their executive team needed to trust them and they needed to trust all the members of that team. And why that mattered was that I tried to look at why it was so important, why they were stressing trust so much. And I looked at some of the psychology uh, studies, research that was done, in particular ones that were done by Susan Fisk. And in her stereotype content model, she talked about how people actually have stereotypes of different groups of people, but they come out on two axes, one on competence and one on warmth. And Asian Americans in particular fall low on warmth, but high on competence. And why that's so important is that if you're really competent, like they believe, like a stereotype of Asian Americans is that they're competent, but they're not so warm. That's another stereotype. I have to say that the people I talked to were overwhelmingly warm and they were competent. So um, that was in my perspective when I, t- I talked to people. But going back to the book and Susan Fisk's study, she says that when people are stereotyped low in warmth and high in competence, people sometimes in the back of their minds, stereotype them. They're fearful of them because if you're not a friend, that means you're not warm. You could be a competitor and you could be dangerous. And a threat. And so for Asian, yeah, right, a threat right. and a threat. So to move up to that level, if you're seen as a threat because they stereotype you as not warm, then it's very difficult for you to move to the chief executive levels, uh, those C-suite levels. Right. And that's one thing. That although my um, interviewees didn't mention anything about this stereotype content model, the research, they kind of felt it. Right. And those who made it up there knew that they had to gain that trust of their coworkers. Now, I was just going to say, so this is they- a, a nice segue to my next comment, which is about you address what, what you call the playbook and the intergenerational oral lessons from family. Uh, in chapter two, and you talk about how these historical narratives are shared with younger people and how to guide them to success. But what you also mention is that when Asian Americans get to middle management, they want to go higher. They're devoid of mentors. Uh, that This comes up a lot. And also, you, you just what you just addressed, the issue of trust, the trust lack of mentoring, that comes up in your book quite a bit. Yeah, it does, because a lot of the um, interviews talk about it. So I made up this term, the playbook, mostly because all of my interviews mentioned this verbal advice that was given to them by their parents, by their peers, by community members, and how you're supposed to succeed. And almost all of it is by your individual effort. 
you um, had almost kind of like a checklist to go through school. If you do well in classes, if you get great grades, if you become the first violin, if you um, become a leader in certain clubs or certain teams, you will get on and do well in college. And then in college, you do some of these similar things and get advice in figuring out what jobs you should take, especially the ones that your parents recommend, like being a doctor or a lawyer or engineer, you'll do well. So most of these things encourage people to try to succeed on their own in this playbook. Likewise, at the mid-career and above level is to try to figure out how to do this all on your own. And what it's devoid of is how you can use programs and how you can have mentors or rely or trust or um, access mentors or use other programs that can help you. And so because this playbook really stresses how you can do well by yourself. I mean, it's good, but it's also limiting. Right, I mean, it's good right. because it encourages you to practice, encourage you to say that if you practice and you try hard and you practice hard in certain things, you do well. So it's not innate in you, right? It's not biological, but if you work at it, you can learn how to do better. That's a good thing to have, right? Of but course. the other thing is, because you do it so much, you rely on yourself so much. And it doesn't talk about how other programs and other people and it kind of ignores that you actually need all that other stuff to help you the other thing it doesn't talk about is what happens if you fail you know and it kind of makes it so that everybody succeeds in the playbook so that playbook becomes like the stereotypical image of asian americans as well as it limits what you can actually do it doesn't have any answers when you hit that ceiling like that bamboo ceiling, it doesn't have any answers as to when you fail at something. So this is where it needs to be broadened out. How do you get to specifics about how do you gain trust? Is there a way that organizations can actually help you and not you doing it personally or in addition to you doing it personally? And here I talk about programs that might have existed for some of the people who made it there, like uh, mentoring programs, like um, affirmative action programs that might have helped you get a job, and all formal programs inside an organization that might have helped introduce you to different sectors in a corporation, right. introduce you to different executives in a corporation. Because as Asian Americans and as still relatively new immigrants without people in those high levels, how will you meet people and learn information about how you can move there if you don't have access to those individuals? That's where a formal program sure. can help. As you note, too, in your book about so many Asian Americans do attend elite schools, populating in Ivy League and Ivy Plus schools. Have the alumni associations been any use? I mean, I would think, you know, there's a lot of alumni networking. I mean, you're a graduate of Columbia and Harvard. I've gone to alumni events, you know, and there is a lot of networking going on. Actually, more networking could help. There are Asian American networks going on. It's limited to your group. And there is networking in terms of the college network. So that helps. But I think, moreover, you need more than just a network. You need to be able to move into a network helps. But in corporations, they actually need to be side by side with you right. to work mentored. as peers. Mentored, right? And I think mentored and to work as peers, sure. not just you can get information from a network, but you have to be able to sit there. And I think for a lot of these 
corporate organizations, what they're missing now, even though they may have a diversity and inclusion program, is that they're not really looking at people. And I'm not talking about just Asian Americans. I'm talking about sure, Latin Americans general, and Latinos sure. and women in general. You need people to always look out that at certain levels, you need everybody there to learn from everybody. Because if you don't have that, what you'll do is people at the very top will promote or bring up people who look just like you because they're the most comfortable with that particular group. And until you have peers there and you know that these folks are, they may look different. They may act a little differently. They may have like different things, but they actually have a lot of information and a lot of things that they contribute to the organization. And that's the whole idea is they're peers. They actually work with you. And that's what we don't have. We don't have people at that high level. I see. We don't, we barely have anybody in that mid level too. Because the second generation hasn't been here, uh, you know, advancing long enough. You know, you've only, had a couple of generations, right? I mean, that's really one of the limitations. That's part of it. And Uh I also think even those who did get to a certain level didn't get promoted all the way up. Right. So even those who graduated college in the 1980s or even Mm -hmm. some in the 1970s, they only got so far. Likewise with African-Americans and Latinos, they only got so far. There's still very few of them at the highest level. Right. And that's where race matters. So before we move on, I just wanted to point out that you do point out in the playbook when young people are advised on how they can advance, you talk about the such fields as in the humanities or in art is really not considered a good way to advance in American society. So some fields are marginalized through this playbook advice. Is that right? Yeah. So going back to the playbook, the playbook are like tenants that I think originally parents wrote up, Asian-American parents, immigrant parents, came up as a reflection of what they think will actually help their children in American society. Right. So this playbook is in response to their parents or grandparents feeling that there is discrimination in the society. So the parents really felt that if you're going to do well in American society, if you're going to fulfill that immigrant bargain, I came here as an immigrant and I want Mm -hmm. you to do better than me because I gave up everything to come here. So for you as my child to do better, I don't want you to feel discrimination. I feel that you will do the best in fields where they just look at you as a doctor or as an engineer, you know, somebody who can produce something and that can help people and that you can actually prove with them with your degrees that you are actually capable and can do well and you're protected with those degrees. Whereas in art and in dance or in any of these other categories, it's much more nebulous. There's nothing there to actually say you are the best in that That category. So a lot of it is from the parents. And so one joke in about the playbook, and I I don't remember I said in, in that chapter or later, but you know, you'd be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, or a loser. And that is actually typical of the playbook. There's certain, uh, yeah, jobs that parents would actually want 
their children to have. And people don't say it, but it's because the children are actually protected. Parents or grandparents feel like their children are actually protected in those um, particular jobs. That's interesting. So you do use the term bamboo ceiling. Can I ask you, is this a pivot off the glass ceiling? Is you know, is designated much for women? It seems it's very clever. You really give it a, a particular bent because it, it is your data and your research shows that there really is a bamboo ceiling in American society. It's funny you say that. It's actually, I didn't coin the term, but actually a woman named Jane Hunt did over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. I see. Um, she wrote a book called Beyond the Bamboo Ceiling. But what I really want to, and I didn't get it put in the book, and I have to give credit to my younger sister. She said, you should have just used the term bamboozled. Because <laughs> in reality, right, right, because right? in reality, these Asian Americans do um, hit the bamboo ceiling, but they're doing it because they're bamboozled to believe in this myth. Um, so really, you should just use that term bamboozled from now on, that's, you know, instead of saying that. That's a good way of using your humor, no doubt. You in your book with a final chapter on Asian American women, I might just say this because I know you and um, we're colleagues, but, you know, they always say many books are memoir. And um, you are one of the most uh, successful young professors uh, that I've worked with at the Graduate Center. Really, it's a pleasure to see somebody like you doing what you're doing. And yet, what Asian American women have to go through, which certainly must incorporate some of your own experiences, is that I thought it was interesting and also an interesting point of accomplishment that Asian American do earn a higher level of uh, salary than uh, white women because of their education and selectivity of specific careers that would earn more money, but yet they continue to earn less than Asian men. You also talk about the dual balancing. Actually, it's three which I was really struck by, about being a woman and the cultural facts of growing up in America, that balancing act, and the second of which is how Asian American women are perceived in the workplace. And then the third leg of that is like dealing with sexual harassment and sexual discrimination. That's a big load to carry on your shoulders. Can you talk about what you found in how maybe you even relate to it personally. I've been doing this for a long time, and when people mentioned all the different things, I can think of not examples like theirs. You know, some of them are so awful. I would never have thought about those things. But, yeah, I'd say those images do exist for Asian-American women, all of them. I think the most shocking one I think most people have not thought about is the one about sexual harassment. I mean, they might have, but nobody has really come out to say it. And in the last year or two with the Me Too movement, I think when Asian American women talk about the Me Too movement in technology in particular, almost all of the women that came out at one point after Ellen Powell they were all Asian American women. And it was a shock for actually for me to see it because some of them didn't have Asian American names. But when you saw their photos, it was clear they were. that yeah. 
Yeah, they were. And I think, um, and still to this day, people don't see the connection and see how little support they actually have when they do say um, or call out or, or follow suit that maybe it has to do with stereotypes of Asian American women, that actually there is um, little support in the workplace from them, from other women and definitely not men and, um, in the workplace. That's one of the, the ones that are, um, I don't know if it's the most shocking, but it's the most stark out of all of the examples that I put in that chapter. And this is a tremendous burden to bear. And, and then they have to deal with, you know, child care issues and, you know, just negotiating the workplace and managing a family. I mean, these are all the, the burdens that all women have to deal with. But, you know, when you're carrying such a load, you must be psychically negotiating this in your mind. You can't be conscious of it continuously because it would drive you mad. But I can relate to it in some ways because I happen to be gay. And so, you know, there are those stereotypes about being gay. And, uh, and you're, and you do think about it, but you don't think about it consciously every second of the day. But you are negotiating a workplace without a doubt. Right. Absolutely. And I think what you're pointing out too is this intersectionality that we don't talk about. Yes. Um, often. Right. And I think. But that is what's going on if you're gay or if you're a person of color. Right. Because you're not just looked at as just being a female, but you're actually looked at as being a gay woman or Asian American woman or black woman on top of it. And those other images that are associated with what it means to being an Asian American woman come along and they may be different than what motherhood is for um, a white woman or for a gay woman or for a black woman. And I think um, in that particular chapter when I talk about motherhood, there are all these images that go along with, oh, you must be like this tough Asian-American Tiger mom. mom tiger, tiger mom. mom. Yes. Yeah. On top of um, <laughs> balancing your work career, you must be spending all your life being a tiger mom. How, how can you do this? You know, and I think one woman actually talked about that, you know, how that stereotype actually affected her um, in the workplace, which I think, you know, I actually didn't come across that myself because, you know, the, the image is relatively recent, but it affects all young Asian American moms these days, you know, especially in terms of how and what happens to their children in school and how they are or are not supposed to react to it. And, of course, it comes out to the hours that you put in at work. Of course, that too. Well, Margaret Chin, this is a tremendous book. At some point, I've never told you this, but I lived in Hawaii for five years. I've lived in an Asian-dominated culture and place, and I learned a lot, and it was you know, multi-ethnic, you know, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese. I learned a lot. Maybe sometime we can talk about that. But this book. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, this book is a great contribution. And congratulations and um, go out and educate the public about this important issue. 
Thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into the Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Professor Margaret Chin of Hunter College and the Graduate Center, CUNY. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Kevin Wolf of CUNY TV. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.